crunch to the smallest lead So you're gonna see caroling this year are we back are we vaccinated and masked up and ready to carol by god by golly frank i'm asking you a question are we ready oh by gosh by golly it's time for mistletoe and holly thank you frank that's a strong start to a christmas song Oh, by gosh, by golly. There's a few, I'll be honest. There's a few Christmas songs where I look forward to. Each and every holiday season as I push my cart through Target and Kohl's and Panera and Marshall's and Banana Republic and Macy's and Safeway and Rite Aid and Trader Joe's and Chevron and Shell and B of A. There's a few Christmas jams that I look forward to. Bells will be ringing. That's okay. And I do like a rump-a-pum-pum. Rump-a-pum-pum. Pretty good. Where are the Jews when it comes to caroling? Are we a little limited? If a few Jews showed up on your front lawn with our two hits, Hanukkah, Hanukkah, baby-dee-dee-dee. What are the lyrics? We don't know. Or, of course, I had a little dreidel. Hanukkah caroling. Am I on to something? Huh? Put it on my Wikipedia page. Invented Hanukkah caroling in 2021. Josh Rosenberg. All right, with that intro, maybe this is considered the holiday episode. Hey, everybody, welcome in. It's the holiday episode. And that means it's going to be special. It's going to be special because we got an interview. And here's why. Here's why we have an interview. Because although I don't have a lot of TV time lately, this is me letting you know how busy I am. I'm just so busy. Not a lot of TV time lately. Can barely even watch my Warriors. Can barely even stay up to date with Curb. And this is one hell of a season for Curb Your Enthusiasm. But I did have a chance to watch a really good new documentary that came out on Netflix called The Sparks Brothers. What's that, you ask? All right, Sparks is a band They've had a ton of success over the last four decades. But I'm guessing right now, I'm just guessing a lot of people still have no clue who they are. And that's okay. That's why I'm recommending this film because afterwards you'll say, okay, it's good that I know about that band now. And it just so happens that I'm related to their number one fan, the number one real fanboy, my uncle Monty, my mom's younger brother. And I have memories of visiting Pittsburgh when Uncle Monty was a young man and seeing his albums, his records, all around the house in those really weird album covers. Very creepy. Not understanding, what is this? 
And after watching the documentary, I go, oh, now I get this. Now I understand. I've even seen them live and I didn't really understand. They don't really fall into a type of music. I'm not even totally sure how to describe them right now. Except they've written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs and they've produced album after album. They've even been the musical guest on Saturday Night Live, which is my barometer for mainstream success. So check that box. They're weird. After watching this doc, they come across as fearless, nice guys, geniuses. Almost seems like fiction at times. If you watch this documentary, you'll start to question, is this even real? Are these real guys or are these characters? How can two brothers be this prolific? So even though I've seen them live, I didn't appreciate it the way I would now after seeing this film. So after slowly, slowly watching this whole documentary, it's long, between the old nap schedule, I figured, okay, it's time for an extra snobby, in-depth music conversation. Let's get on Monty. And that is today's guest, the magnificent Monty Mallon, a man I have known my entire life, of course. I got to give him the proper intro. He's a drummer himself. That's true. He's a podcaster himself. Also true. I don't think I need to say true after all of these facts. Uh, published author. That's true. He works in arms control to reduce weapons of mass destruction. To seek out all the missiles and then get them out of the hands of the people that shouldn't have missiles. And that's what brought him closer to D.C. He's a native Pittsburgher who remains totally in love with the city. He's an owner of Bedlington Terriers, which is a type of dog you should Google right now and go, huh, okay. He's a father. He's a husband. He's an uncle to yours truly. So let's just jump right into this. Let's get to know Uncle Monty. Are you looking over there? I'm sorry, I'll wait. No, I have to look three different places. <laughs> look at my high-maintenance A-list guest. <laughs> <laughs> didn't my <laughs> didn't my producer prep you? I no, I, I read the I read the cue cards and what it says. I say, no, it's it's my fault. I had assumed you were prepared. Uh, you assumed wrong. This is the um, coming out of retirement tour for me. We're yeah. both we're both high maintenance. It's funny when it comes to audio, but no one cares. They just care more about content. I think. Yeah, I haven't tested this mic with this uh, system yet. So, but no, I understand. Right on. Thank you, Monty. Thank you. So tell me how the sound is now. Are you speaking into the mic? Yeah. Are you happy with it? Yeah, I am. I am. Your okay. levels are good. My levels than, are good. We're just going to start. Is it better than it was before? Similar. All right. But I mean, you're happy with it. Yeah, actually, I am. Well, I should start by saying I finally finished the documentary and it took me about, I don't know, 10 to 12 sittings. But at about sitting number eight or nine, I thought to myself, of course, I have to have the one and only Monty Mallon on the podcast, because I got into it and I finally understood the appeal of this legendary group that you've loved throughout your life. And even though we saw them live together at UCLA, maybe 12 years ago, I wish that I had seen this documentary prior to it, because my takeaway is that the Sparks are a visual experience. And it's not exactly the type of music I would love just sitting in my car driving to, but when you see the performance, when you see Ron's stare or when you see Russell's charisma on stage, I do understand the appeal of this group finally. So I wanted to get a lot of your thoughts on Sparks, not the Sparks, but Sparks. And the documentary is called Sparks Brothers uh, by a guy named Edgar Wright, a filmmaker that I think you'd really dig as, as I've researched. Yeah, yeah. Are you, 
Yeah, no, yeah. no, but not until this. Um, what are some of the films you've seen by Edgar? Well, I've always loved the Sparks Brothers. That's at the top of my list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but in all honesty, I associate this band with you because I'd never heard of them before you. And now that this is on Netflix, you know, they're going to reach a new demographic. They're going to hopefully cultivate even more fans, although they're in the twilight of their careers. I just thought it was spectacular. I thought it was so good. And at times it even seemed like a mockumentary, like this is crazy that this is still going and going. And I Googled it and they've put out 26 studio albums. I mean, part of the lore of Sparks, it's like a Jamie Moyer career. They just keep going and going and it's quality music. But I have to think that the amount of albums and just times that they've reinvented themselves and taken risks is part of the appeal for their big fan base. Well, you know, everybody comes at it from different perspectives. Um, there are people who joined them in 1979 when they put out a disco album. So they associate Sparks with a, a very disco heavy sound. It happens to be one of their best albums, but that's how they like it. And they like it. And one of the things that Sparks does is they put out dance music on occasion. You know, some of their albums are very dance focused. Some people like that best. Some people like it when they do the harder rock and roll stuff better. But you know, that's fine because everybody has a certain, you know, they appeal to everybody in different ways and that's totally good. But there are, there's a large group of hardcore fans like myself who love Sparks for the concept of what Sparks are all about and what they're all about. You know, everybody would have their own interpretation of what they're all about. But to me, it's the brothers and the vision of the two brothers that carries through no matter what kind of music they make, as opposed to when they make this kind of music or that kind of music. That doesn't mean I don't have my favorite. But uh, when I, I saw them on, I'll just give you how I came to that conclusion. And everybody has uh, their own story, of course. But I saw them on television in 74, 75. I saw them twice. I just knew immediately they had a great appeal to me. They were one of the, it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. And I thought, and they were rocking hard. And I tend to listen to harder rocking music. And I just thought, this is a hard rock band with a really cool perspective. And that's really fun. And so I was enjoying it. And I got their two albums before the two that they were, that were big at the time. And I was like, this is great. And all of a sudden, the first album they put out, that was new for me as opposed to going to the back catalog was an album called indiscreet in 1975 and i put it on and it was nothing like the first four i mean it had little elements it had similar similarities but it was a vast departure put it that way from the first four and then i started to think okay so what's going on here now a lot of people in england where they were popular at the time were kind of turned off and their popularity started to wane but for me it was this is really interesting. Where are these guys coming from? And so then I started to listen to all those five albums in a different way. It's like, this is, th these guys have a really unique perspective on things. And then they left England. While they're still really, really popular, even if it was on the wane a little bit, they're still very well known, very popular. But what they did was they disbanded the band that they were with and they left England and they came to the United States. And it was like, what are they doing? Bands don't do that. And they came to the United States and they put out an album that was 360 degrees different from indiscreet and then the album that came after that was 360 degrees album from that album and then a year later they came out with a disco album but by then you kind of go from okay i want to hear this kind of music to hearing 
What are they going to do next? And once they hook you like that, you're on the journey. So is that part of it? that's where I've been all these years. Where you could never say, like some bands that I love, I go, I hope their next album sounds similar to the sound that I initially fell in love with. But to be a Sparks fan, you have to have the opposite mentality of take me somewhere else. I don't want to see them plateau. I want to see this group keep shocking us with, wow, now they're doing synth pop or now they're doing techno or now they're going back to some punk sound. Because I think they like to be uncomfortable. That's what I got from the documentary. And they don't have any problem making fans uncomfortable. Well, like I said, some people want to hear a certain spark sound, like they did a certain sound in the 1980s. And that was a really cool kind of a new wave-ish sound. And that's all good. And that's fine. But I think a lot of people are like me. It's kind of where are they taking us next in their music? And it's a different expectation because of how good they are and how talented they are. So I'm a big Ramones fan and the Ramones fan albums I enjoy the most are the ones that sound like classic Ramones. When they went off into this pop stuff and did other things, it was never as good. And the album suffered when they got back to their form. That was when they were best ACDC. I want them to sound like ACDC every time out, but with sparks, I'm always excited to hear what they're going to do next. Do you typically listen to lyrics? When you listen to music, like, are you following the story? Are you following the message? Or are you mainly just in it for the melody? No, I, I definitely listen to the lyrics, but I don't obsess over the lyrics. You know, I like to hear the lyrics come last almost. But with Sparks, you really want to study those lyrics. Yeah, I could tell. I mean, That's what you're into. Depth. There's depth to those lyrics. And the principal songwriter is the guy who plays the keyboards, Ron. He really has a lot of perspective on a lot of things. Sometimes he's just funny as hell, and sometimes he really goes in depth on things. And in, with Sparks, the lyrics matter a lot. Yeah, with this documentary, I had so many takeaways, and I anticipate you would agree with some of my takeaways and disagree, but it's rare for a music documentary, and this was phenomenal. I think this is one of the better music docs I've ever seen, but it's rare where they don't deviate from the music to talk about you know, an alcoholism path or rehab or you know, sex addiction or things got ugly. This was purely about the music, for over two hours, it was album to album. It was genre to genre. It was fan to fan. They never got away. And I realized these guys are very likable. They're moral guys. You know, you see Ron and Russell to this day, their relationship, it's endearing. It's easy to love the guys and just sit back and enjoy the show. But it didn't have that typical rock star, like middle of the plot where you're just like, it's about to unravel. It seems like they always remain good guys. Well, they're not without their blemishes in their early parts of their career before they knew who they were and what they were really all about while they were just growing up. Um, they did tend to ditch their bands and, you know, some of those people do have some bitter thoughts. Oh, I got you. I got you. That said though, that said though, I would agree with what you said. I mean, they basically are two guys who did their thing and you kind of have to take it or leave it. Uh, some people can't stand them. <clears throat> That's fine. But the other thing that's great about the film is, in my opinion, is that the guy who made it, Edgar Wright, is a big fan himself. He wasn't interested in doing one of these, you know, uh, VHS document. Well, not VHS, yeah, behind the that, music, behind the music. And yeah, then they had this drug issue and yeah, yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. He wasn't interested in doing that. He wants to just tell the story of the music. And it's it's great. And it's being nominated for all kinds of. Is it really? For, 
Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. And I hope more people see this to justify my interest in it. And I actually feel bad that I haven't had you on my podcast earlier, but I was like, this is finally the moment where Sparks gets some mainstream love, some attention, and I can bring on Monty to talk about it. Do you use the word genius? When I see Russell play the keys, I don't think he's playing at this incredible virtuoso level. And when I see Russell sing, he has a good voice. Don't get me wrong. But it didn't strike me like Freddie Mercury level. Do you use the word genius with their skills and ability, or is it something about the longevity of this career that the catalog, the amount of music they've created, is it the quality of their skill, or is it just the collective uh, catalog that they've put out? Well, you know, I'm a fanboy, right? So I'm going to tell you, it's Ron who plays keyboards. Yeah, he's not like he doesn't play virtuoso keyboards and all that. But the songs that he writes and the arrangements and the words that he writes, yes, I would put them in a genius category. Uh, Russell's singing is extremely idiosyncratic. I'll let others judge whether it's genius or not, but it certainly is right for the music. And Ron tended to write in higher registers, almost forcing him to sing in a higher register. It's the two of them together that form sparks. It's not just one or the other. It's the it's the power of the synergy of what they bring to the table. So I think there have yeah, I would say there's some music there that I would say is genius. Yeah. Absolutely. They yeah. they never have ever stopped working. And then another comeback and they reinvent themselves. They take risks, another comeback and they reinvent themselves. Another comeback. They have it. Yeah. That's why the documentary started to feel like fiction at times. I was like, is this even real? These guys are now in their 40s, in their 50s, now into their 60s, and they just can't stop. And fans like yourself are growing with them. And I actually do think it's going to continue. I don't think that there's in that was the end, even though they were burning their albums as the visual at that UCLA concert we went to. I don't see these guys ever retiring. It's just until the grave they're going to produce. They've put out a ton of albums since then. They have a new one that's almost complete. They're going to start touring in a couple months. I have tickets to see them in two places. Uh, they just keep going. And it's, you know, I've had this conversation about the Rolling Stones. If you want to keep going at that age, you have to be high quality every time out, right? You can't become a laughing stock. They have to be on every single night. And it's the same with any of these groups that hit this age. If they don't want to become nostalgia bands. You've never had a moment where you said they lost it. They're past their prime. They jumped the shark. You never had that moment? Sure. Sure. Um, but you never know. You never knew what they were going to do next. Yeah, no, not all the albums are the same quality. And, you know, different fans would argue about which ones. But there was a period in the late 80s where I just thought it was, you know, they had really lost what they had. But then they came back in the early 90s with what a really strong album after like a four or five year hiatus of doing nothing. They were, they were focusing on their movie career and movie scripts and trying to get them moving. But then they came back with a really strong album. And then they came back with an album in, I think, 2000. I'm not the best with dates, but it was called, it was around then. It was called Little Beethoven, which kind of reestablished them and established the template that's been the basis of their music for years since then. And uh, it really kind of elevated them to a different level. They were all of a sudden like, you know, this was the Sparks concept. This is who Sparks were and what they were all about, as opposed to being a band that was trying to compete with other bands and have top 40 hits and that kind of thing. How many times do you think you've seen them live? Have you counted? Oh, probably about, well, probably about 12. That's a lot. I mean, to see the same group. 
I mean, I've known you my whole life, but I do remember, vividly remember visiting Forest Glen Road on a family trip to Pittsburgh and seeing some of your records around the house. And I remember some of these album covers, whether they were just in your crate, in your old bedroom. And I remember they were very eerie, like borderline creepy, some of the poses, some of the artwork. And now I look back at the videos too, and I just wonder, is that the 80s? Can you explain the eerie element to some of these 80s videos, whether it's the glare, whether it's the fashion, or just some of the simplicity to it? It it almost like seems Halloween-esque in a way. And I don't just mean Sparks, but I mean a lot of the videos I've seen from the 80s, you know, early 80s, it just strikes me as creepy. There are a couple creepy videos from that period for sure. Um, By the way, I have all those albums. I've never thrown away a Sparks album. So do you still have a record player? Yeah, we do as a matter of fact. But I mean, now it's all Spotify. Yeah, yeah. You know, why why bother? But yeah, I have every one of those things. And uh, I have like four copies of some of the albums. I just keep carrying around with me wherever I go. While we're talking music, and I hope that this conversation sounds extra snobby because that's my goal. While we're talking music, though, did I make it up in my head that you dislike the Beatles? Or is that a fact? You dislike yeah, I, the I Beatles. Yeah, stand, I can't stand the Beatles, but I hope that doesn't make me lose credibility with your audience. But yeah, <laughs> No, your honesty, to, your honesty is good, but you have to articulate why. I listen to some of their songs and I just say, why do people like this? I don't, I don't get it. Interesting. You know, I mean, there, there's the Stones and the Beatles. And to me, the Stones were just light years ahead. And the Beatles, I listened to them and I said, I don't get it. I, I don't understand it. They seem like they're okay songs at best. You think that they're fine? Yeah, like they're fine. It's not like they're bad. No, or do you think no, they're bad? No, no, I'm misrepresenting myself if you really want to know. Yeah. I think I can't stand them. And like, <laughs> I, I just often the, I can't listen to a song all the way to the end. It's like, okay, get this out of here. Get this off me. I can't listen to it. Wow. No, I'm saying there's a couple songs that are okay. And when I'm in bands, I let them play a couple of Beatles songs because, oh, it's the Beatles. We've got to do Beatles songs. But I try to make them songs that are like covers of Chuck Berry songs. So they're playing Beatles songs. And in my mind, we're playing Chuck Berry. See, in my head, I understand their appeal. I do view them at the genius level. Everything they do sounds good to my ears. But it's so interesting to hear you say that because I'll label you a music aficionado. I know you really like music, but the fact that you just hate their sound is so fucking funny. I'm not a music aficionado. I just, the Beatles have just never worked for me. But I read your blog entry about the Sparks. That is written like a music aficionado listens to music. Plus, you're a drummer yourself. Maybe the word aficionado is a little much, but you're a music enthusiast, we could say. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's a lot of other bands out there. Well, along these lines. Do you like the Grateful Dead? Yeah, I do. I think when I say like, let me give you BB plus. Like that's how it sounds to my ears. It's not like I'm just so into it, but I really do like the dead. Ugh. You hate it. I can't stand them. I like them even less than the Beatles. I even went to a Grateful Dead concert with a friend of mine and it just never ended. I think I might still be there. Oh, the jam band stuff you hate. You just hate when the song goes 12 minutes of meandering. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. Do you think if you were on the right substances that it would change? Like if you were on what a lot of people were on at a Grateful Dead show, do you think it would change the experience? This is me assuming you weren't on some psychedelics. No, my friend and I snuck in some little bottles of alcohol. (laughs) Like airplane bottles? What? Like airplane bottles? Yeah, we we snuck in a bunch of them and drank them. Um, But this was, I think this was after I stopped uh, imbibing in certain things. And it just never ended. And it went <laughs> never in, ended. in the middle of the sh- 
in the middle of the show, they went into this drum solo and it went on for about 20 minutes. I said, I, I got to get out of here. I'll go uh, to the bathroom. Maybe by the time I'm back, they'll be done with this drum solo. I got back another 20 minutes. Torture. I mean, how could, how can you put your audience through that? God, you know, I'm a rap fan, but that's how I feel about a lot of rap. I see on Saturday night live. I'm just wow. like, Oh, bad rap is worse than any genre. I, I just can't handle mumble rap. So I get, I get what it's like on your ears. Well, your taste. This is me. This is me. You know, if you like the Grateful Dead and all those guys, go to town. Well, you're unique with the way you consume the arts because one of your favorite comedic actors of all time is Chris Elliott and no one else. Uh, no one else would say Chris Elliott is my number one comedic actor, but Uncle Monty, you've always liked this guy. And luckily, you know, most people would know him most recently for Schitt's Creek, but you liked him way back in the early Letterman days. You liked all the nuance. Go, you can go to YouTube and you can say uh, guy under the seats and you'll see all the clips of Chris Elliott under the seats. I don't think anything's funnier than that. <laughs> You'll never meet another Chris I, I, I Elliott enthusiast. Nothing out loud. Chris Elliott, did you get into Shit's Creek, by the way? Because I of him? It. You loved it, yeah. No, yeah, I thought he was okay in it, but I thought the whole show was great. God, did they sweep the Emmys that year? It just yeah. snowballed the appeal. So Chris Elliott and the Sparks, or I shouldn't say Sparks, the name of the band is just Sparks. Yeah, we don't say the Sparks. And Grateful Dead and Beatles just belong in the trash can for this guy. All right, the fact that I have you on my podcast means I have to go in many other directions. But, but can I just read sure. the review of oh, the yeah, yeah. Uh, Sparks Brothers movie from by Edgar Wright? which yes. I wrote for you just for this show. This is an exclusive. I wrote it just for this show and it's in haiku form. Yes, please. Okay. Ready? Yes. It's a great movie. Everybody should see it. I give it five stars. That leaves a question. Is five the highest on the scale? Yes. Yeah. You have to assume that. to appreciate <laughs> the haiku. You have to assume that. Well, that is one of the most forgettable haikus I've ever sat through, but I appreciate you giving us this exclusive on the here we go podcast with the pest and the snob Absolutely. weekdays. I have to tangent. You want to hear my other haiku or which are we going to skip over that? Uh, I'll go for it. Yeah. Give me the other haiku. Okay. This is for Passover. So oh, this yeah, is yeah. for the Jewish members of your audience. Our best holiday, yeah. Okay. And this is something that everybody can relate to. Ready? <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah. It goes like this. Passover matzah. It sits on the shelf for years. Nobody wants it. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. <laughs> God, I feel like editing that out. Look, you edit it. It's your show. <laughs> no, I, I feel like just leaving you out, hanging you out to dry with that one. But that that is a real matzah haiku. For all three of my fans who are going to get into that. Okay. <laughs> so, born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA. Yes. I'm a Bay Area guy. So, if anyone was taking a vacation to San Francisco, I would be able to say, you know, here are the hot spots. You probably want to go to a Giants game, maybe Cobb's Comedy Club, maybe House of Prime Rib, go see Alcatraz, State Bird Provisions. I'd have a little insider trips that they could take. But when it comes to Pittsburgh... I've always enjoyed my time there, but I know you really love that city. Like you have a, a true relationship with Pittsburgh. So if someone had never been and they only had a weekend in Pittsburgh, I'm not asking you for the hot spots. I'm asking you for the Monty Mallon tour. What would be the must do spots and experiences of Pittsburgh? Okay. So first of all, um, great question. Thank you. You're on your game. Thank you. Sure. Sure. Thank sure. you. That's what I go uh, for. 
Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, so first of all, I consider myself currently a Pittsburgh who happens to have been displaced since about 1986. Yeah, if, if you're talking about somebody who had never been there before, I'd say what you want to do on Friday night is you want to take the incline up from the south side to Mount Washington, and you want to get up there and enjoy the amazing view of the city. That's the first thing you want to do is just take in the city. Uh, that that view, there's, there's nothing like it. Because you see the three rivers converging, you see the whole city, you see the neighborhoods in the back. There's nothing like it. Now, the other things you want to do in Pittsburgh are eat. Yeah. Okay. So you got to make sure you get in Minio's Pizza. I agree with you. Pizza. I agree. It's tied for tied for my number one. And a very sad note is that the place where I ate not daily but a lot when I was in grad school and also growing up in Pittsburgh is no longer there. It just closed because of COVID about a year ago. And you and I went there and I bought you a beer, even though you were underage. Remember that? Oh, I was 16, was very underage. Yes. Yeah. That was the original hot dog shop. The dirty and there was nothing like it. So that would be part of the tour. You want to hit the strip district because that's where there's a lot of uh, Italian and other ethnic stores, plus a lot of the uh, stores that sell sports memorabilia. And it's just a, it's it's right off of downtown, and it's just a nice place place to spend a couple hours. Plus, the restaurants have gotten really really good there. There's good Italian restaurants, good breakfast places. So that's something else you got to do. Um, it's always fun to take a trip to Mount Washington, and you can see some of the history from the uh, military battles in the past, and uh, just because of its location. So you can see Fort Pitt there, and you can see some of the other military installations. But also, it's just a beautiful view with all three of the rivers around you. If you're a sport fan it's worth taking in the pirates it's worth taking in uh, because the ballpark is one of the two or three best in the in the world i mean i know you probably love san francisco's park and i know it's supposed to be great so i'm not gonna say it's the best but it's a fantastic ballpark um there's so many things like that to do there's so many great neighborhoods that have a good ethnic feel to them um it's easy to spend a weekend there. If I know the person's taste, there's one of the best conservatories in the country, Phipps Conservatory. And if you like uh, that kind of thing, it's it's definitely on your list of things to do. There's the Andy Warhol Museum because yeah. he was from Pittsburgh, I believe. And that's a great thing to do and to spend a day. And they have that set up for the kids. There's a science museum. There's plenty to do. But the neighborhoods are special to me. Um, I grew up in Squirrel Hill we had a park called Frick Park and Shenley Park where I, you know, spent hours and hours of my youth. And, you know, in those days when you were younger, you could get together with your friends and just walk all night, you know, literally. And your parents didn't, my parents never really cared, you know, and you, we never felt any risk, but we always, we would just walk through these neighborhoods and it was a wonderful thing to do. And then there was, you know, there was a bar in Homestead, which is another neighborhood in Pittsburgh where they knew me so well, they actually had a specialty sandwich for me. And they would, uh, they would they, when I came, they would serve it. It was basically a grilled cheese sandwich slathered in jalapenos. Really? And they would just make it for me. It, it was that kind of town, you know? And I guess for the tourists now, I would say you want to also go to Primanti Brothers. That's a very famous sandwich shop. You took me there, yeah. So, yeah. So, there, there's those are some of the things to do. And then I guess the other thing I would mention you know, the Carnegie Museum, uh, the library there, those are worth spending some time in. I mean, those are really classic museums, and uh, I would highly recommend them for some time. Yeah. I knew you would say the Dirty O. That's so sad that it's a COVID casualty. Because I remember, I don't know, yeah. maybe I was 15, 16, but we definitely got a couple of pitchers, a big pile of fries, some hot dogs. And that's near the campus of the University of Pittsburgh, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it was just yeah. spectacular. That did feel like a slice of Pittsburgh. And also, here you are in Kensington, Maryland. It's fine, but I know you wouldn't describe Kensington, Maryland with that affinity that you just described Pittsburgh. Do you think you would return one day? To Pittsburgh? Yeah. My wife and I are talking about retirement options. My wife, Nancy, I should give her a plug. Give her a uh, plug. We're talking about retirement, and some kind of return to Pittsburgh is definitely part of the mix you know i so i don't i'm not saying we're going to go back there i'm just saying it's definitely part of the mix yeah um i know what i would look for yeah i mean i have a lot of lot of affinity toward it and i should mention by the way where i went to graduate school at Pitt. yeah uh you can go right inside there is home plate because it's built right over forbes field and you can still see the wall the right field wall where Mazeroski hit his home run and people still gather there every year and kind of hang out and just celebrate the 1960 World Series. It's still a big deal. Well, how old were you in 1960? Uh, I was, for the first three months until April 7th, I was zero. And then I was born on April 7th. And so, you know, I, I, I don't remember the 1960 World Series, but my brother does. Sure. So you don't have the Mazeroski memory, but you have the 1979 We Are Family memories, of course. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, 71, 79. Yeah. I've heard you're, you're not only the biggest Sparks fan I've ever met, you're the biggest Pirates fan along with Sam. So when I hear your memories, I kind of get into it. But then the two home games I went to with you, very dull, very dull. Even though that ballpark is majestic. PNC is spectacular. Is it still called PNC? It is. And the reason why it was dull is because the, I don't remember what year it was, but chances are they sucked. <laughs> they definitely they sucked. Al Martin yeah. T-shirt day in 1996. <laughs> and Dale Svame went deep. And that was my only pirate memory. The Dale <laughs> Svame home did, run, which cut the deficit to 6-1. a horrible team for since 1992 or so with with a couple exceptions here and there and then they had a a resurgence around 2013 but basically for you know they had like a 22 year record of being an under 500 team but with you if we had gone in 2013 or 2014 when the place was packed and it's a small place so everybody's right on top of the field you would have had a whole different memory well i actually don't require each sporting event to be incredibly memorable sometimes it's good to go see the down years i I mean that because then you get to see the real gritty fans the lifelong fans and it also says something about your personality you're faithful to sparks to chris elliott to your pirates i mean they could go through some terrible albums chris elliott could miss a few times with his tv cameos and the pirates could be bad but you're still with them you're pretty dedicated fan of what you like you're pretty I'm passionate with them. i just don't let myself have the emotional investment in them right now because they're just so horrible yeah. but yeah i that tends to be part of who i am and yeah i, I would agree with that. you're passionate no it's true now here's why you are in kensington because it's close to dc and you've worked for our government for many years and it's funny how many of our conversations actually don't focus on this because i think what you do is so important and i do want to touch on this while i have you if i were to describe it I'd probably say things like my mug, my favorite mug for the last 15 years. It says the Commission on the Prevention of Weapons of Mass Destruction, Proliferation and Terrorism. And I know words like nuclear security and non-proliferation of weapons. But how would you describe it if you just had a new neighbor move to the move to your street and said, hey, Monty, what do you do for a living? How would you simplify it for someone? Well, first of all, thanks for still having that mug. I'm pretty sure I gave it to you. I love it. I have a similar mug myself. I love it. That was from a a congressionally mandated commission that I served on for a few months. Um, What I do is, what people don't always realize is that the Department of Energy has a semi-autonomous agency that has the largest suite of non-proliferation programs of any agency in the government. 
And by nonproliferation, I mean, there's two aspects of it, of, of nuclear security. I and mean, there's many aspects, but there's keeping the bad stuff and the weapons out of the hands of the bad guys. And then there's trying to prevent states from acquiring. And so you have the state-based proliferation concerns, and then you have the uh, sub-state-based proliferation concerns. And that's what we do. We do it through programs that are, uh, we, we have the national laboratories that are part of the DOE complex. And I don't want, I'm not trying to sound like a, a salesperson, but we call them the crown jewels of the government. I mean, you have just the most amazing collection of individuals there who are working on uh, technological solutions. And that's where we come from at NNSA. But when I was right now, I'm in a position where I'm the deputy director of an office. And for a year, I was the acting director. And so from there, you have a little bit different perspective. Before that, I was largely in the programs. And in the programs, you work with counterparts, either from other states or from, uh, well, always from other states. Um, but you work with them to help them build up their ability to be aware of dangerous materials or technologies that might be crossing into their borders. You work with them to build up their safeguards and things. Yeah, there's a whole suite of programs. And I know you don't want me to go into detail beyond that. I'm happy to. But I mean, you know, basically, there's there's a lot of work that goes on trying to address, you know, for example, with arms control. Let me be more specific. So yeah. with arms control, uh, we have offices that are working very hard with our lab counterparts to developing the tools needed for monitoring and verification of those arms control agreements. So that's where NNSA comes in. We have a policy component, but where we really focus is on that technological contribution. And that's a very concrete example of what we do. We work with uh, our labs to help develop the monitoring and verification capabilities so that we can have assurance in an arms control agreement. And the other side is going to have assurance that we're not doing anything. And that brings stability. Traditionally, I've run these programs and it's been an absolute joy. I started out at the State Department for six years and I loved that. Um, the time came for me to move and I moved over to NNSA, Department of Energy, and it's been a it's been a great career. Is everything you do professionally a response to this massive buildup of weapons throughout the early stages of the Cold War? Like is your whole department, your whole career predicated on the fact that we got carried away, we kept building weapons, and now we got too smart. The human race got too smart where we could destroy civilizations. We could destroy societies. So we have to have strong peacemakers. We have to have strong diplomats and people like you who are working in disarmament. In After the Soviet Un Union broke up in the early 1980s, there was the flurry of arms control. And before that, there were literally tens of thousands of these weapons on both sides facing each other. Now that's down to about 1,500 on each side. The threat, the numerical threat, has been vastly reduced. So you've been a success. Now the threat, well, I, I can't say I had much. No, I, I mean, what you saying, do, what you do has worked. What, what the times were right. The times were right for that kind of thing to happen. And we were able to make it happen working. You know, the Russians didn't want these things either. So there's this massive reduction. The challenge is that now it's changing. It, it's, it's not all about numbers. It's about accuracy and it's about the deployment strategies and it's about uh, strategic defenses that change the equation. When you had 20,000, 30,000 weapons facing each other, if the other side says, well, we have a strategic defense, it's kind of a joke. Mm -hmm. When you have 1,500, then all of a sudden the equation changes. And that's where it gets interesting, but it's also a new level of danger. 
And that's where we are now. So that's what we're trying to deal with now. You think you have another book in you? And I say another book because you've written one. But if you were to focus on perhaps the last 10 years of your career, do you think that I know on this podcast, you're saying you probably don't want me to be so wordy. And that's true. I'd like the concise version. But if you and I were just talking, I could do two hours on this topic. I find this to be fascinating and very important what you do for a living. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's I've been very lucky. I've had chances to uh, I did a three year detail at National Defense University where I got to teach and put together entire programs and uh, really focusing on not only this idea of the threat and response and, and risks and what we do about it, but also putting together a course that dealt with uh, kind of the nuclear 201, which is looking at case studies like the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and uh, other things along those lines and really saying what were the lessons learned, how do they apply today? And I've been very fortunate. I've gotten to do some really cool stuff. And, you know, one of the coolest things I ever did was running a program called the Nuclear Cities Initiative for a few years where we actually went to these obscure places in Russia and worked with their scientists to help develop their skills outside of the military application. So we helped them learn civilian skills that had broader applications. And that was the time we were worried about brain drain. We were worried about them selling their skills to other countries and that kind of things. And that was one of the most rewarding things because you got to meet the people and you got to really talk to them as people and understand what motivated them. Um, unfortunately, it was a program that kind of ran its course and Congress never really understood it. You know, what, what are you doing really? How do you, what's your metrics for this? And mm -hmm. it's like, well, we have metrics, but they weren't, you know, with other programs, like here's all this nuclear materials and now it's, we took it away. So that's a very clear metric, right? Yeah. But with this stuff, it was yeah. all kind of, well, yeah, now they can do new things. It was never all as persuasive as we wished. And it ran its course. But, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've gotten to do some pretty cool stuff. I'm going to call you multifaceted Monty. The versatile Uncle Monty of Kensington. Uh, you're, you're way too kind. You're way too kind to me, Josh. I'm being objective. As I was prepping to have you on, I was like, yeah, I could talk Sparks, but this guy also works for National Security, the DOE. We're also talking about a man who could talk Pittsburgh and baseball, and finally, martial arts. You're a black belt in what? I am in Muay Thai. I'm a fourth degree black belt. Third what drew black belt? Third. I, I just said that because my wife and I were talking about. Am I really going to continue this for another four year to fourth degree? But so I take that back. Third degree black belt. And what drew you to Muay Thai of all the arts? My son, Philip, started to take it. This was, I guess, about a, almost a decade ago, maybe over a decade ago. And I would just sit there watching his class, reading a book or whatever. And he said, why don't you take one of the adult classes? And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. But he said, yeah, go ahead, give it a try. And so I did. And I was kind of hooked. Wow. I didn't know that. And it, yeah. Well, here's the weird question, because when I look at you, you're just warm, cuddly Uncle Monty, but you're... A what degree black belt? Third degree black belt. So someone would be making a giant mistake if they messed with Uncle Monty. Have you ever fantasized just for a moment of what if? What if I actually had to Here, use everything I know? Here's what I can tell you. All right. I mean, we talk about uh, using it in self-defense yeah. and not being, you know, and, and all those things. And those are very, very important things. I've never been in a bar fight or really any other kind of fight in my life. So I don't see why at the age of 61, I'm all of a sudden going to be like, okay, people are coming at me. I got to go at it. 
so, but there's two points there. One is that it's great discipline and it's kept me in much better shape for a 61 year old guy than I would have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. But the second thing is this getting to what you asked. If I saw an attack on my family or something where I did get involved, it would be all out. It would be all out. It would be no second thoughts about it. God, I'm picturing what all out means. First of all, it's the title of your biopic all out the Monty story. This summer, from the way too kind, this summer, from the people that brought you Uncle Buck, it's Uncle Lethal, well, and he's all out. You need a tagline. Well, I hope, I hope never to use any of this stuff. You know? Yeah, but have and you fantasized I'm about not it? Claiming, I'm not claiming I'm the best in the world at this either. I'm just saying that if, I know you're not. There are a couple situations where if I had to use it, it would be all out, and that's the only way I can imagine doing it. But I can't imagine ever, like I said, I'm, I barely go to bars now anyway. Oh, trust like me. Into a fight. Bars are not the only place to get into a fight. You could be at a Pirates game with your kids. Some drunk guy in front of you starts running his mouth, and he doesn't know he's talking to Uncle Lethal from the hit movie All Out. Well, it's weird to have a skill set where the goal is never to use it. And there aren't many <laughs> skill sets where you're like, and I just want to put this away in a drawer for my whole life. You know, if I was like an incredible magician and you knew that, and I was like, but Uncle Monty, my goal is not to show anyone my magic skills. You know, someone would be like, come on, don't you kind of want to show just, someone just so your magic you know, skills? In honor yeah. of your daughters, I've been brushing up on my yo-yo tricks. <gasps> I forgot. Oh, I forgot your yo-yo skills. How did this yeah. podcast go so deep into sparks? We could have gone deeper into yo-yo skills. Walk that dog. Baby in the cradle. Make it sleep, my friend. Oh, buddy. I'm going to wrap it up. I know it's later on the East Coast. Oh, by the way, when we did see the Sparks Live, sorry, I keep calling them the Sparks. When we saw the Sparks, oops, when we saw Sparks Live at UCLA, was that considered a great show for you? Um, My daughter was with me Uh right around the time of her uh, bat mitzvah. Uh You were with me. Dory was with me, your mother, and my cousin Moshe was with me. They performed two of my all-time favorite Sparks albums in their entirety and did a 40-minute encore. And to this day, that is either maybe the or one of the greatest concerts that I've ever attended. I love hearing you say that. The music, it was the company, it was just the overall experience flying all the way out to LA. I still remember the whole thing from beginning to end with my daughter it was something i i can't even begin to tell you what a great night that was do you remember what year it was i don't uh 2008 okay 2009 right around there it's weird valentine's day yeah it was it's weird to think i finally have an appreciation for that moment not to say i overlooked it not to say it was forgettable i enjoyed it but now after this documentary but it was cool i mean russell with the stare the male brothers we got to see him so i appreciate you and my love to the fam. Let's talk soon. Let's even elaborate on more of these topics that I just kind of planted the seeds of. Okay. Uh, thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I hope your listeners will enjoy it. Um, love to the fam. Oh, this will this will never air. Um, but I do appreciate you coming on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just figured do, no. this, do this for the old man. This, this will this never air. Man. No, pal. He'll, he'll think this is so great. Okay. I should now say it this. Makes sense. Yeah. Finally, it makes sense. I just wanted to catch up. Got it. Yeah. Oh, this isn't being recorded. <laughs> and he has a podcast himself called So Important, which I will plug in the outro. All right, Uncle Monty, good to see you. Thank you, Josh. It was great seeing you, too. All right, there he is, a true Renaissance man, Maurice. 
Monty Malin. Monty Malin, everybody. And I do want to plug his podcast. It's called So Important. Check it out wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll play a snippet right now. Now, it's an interview podcast. So he interviews people about what they're passionate about, what's important to them. Really good podcast. But the little snippet, I'm going to play the episode where he describes the evolution of drumming, the history of drumming. It's called The Birth of the Backbeat. So once again, it's called So Important, the interview podcast. You can listen to any of the interviews, but here's a little bit from The Birth of the Backbeat. Now let's go to Chicago, where many of the great black acts of the time were recording. There was a fellow by the name of Elias McDaniel, and he was introducing African rhythms into his rock and roll music, and in the process, creating his own damn beat. Elias McDaniel is, of course, much better known as Bo Diddley, and the Bo Diddley beat became a staple of rock and roll, and it remains so to this day. And while we're listening, make sure you check out the great Jerome Green on Maracas. He's providing that integral high-end shuffle to augment the pounding rhythm of the drums. Jerome was a session musician, asked to go on the road with Bo, but he didn't want to lug around a drum kit. So he picked up the maracas instead. And listen how it all came together in Bo Diddley from 1955. Turned it into a duet, Monty. All right, leave a nice rating on iTunes and have yourself a wonderful week. For some reason, I'm going to call this the holiday episode. We're going to get back to saying Merry Christmas in this country. All right, this will be my Christmas episode. So I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got to know a little bit more about Sparks and Pittsburgh and a few other things as well. That's going to officially retire this episode. 166, folks. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon.